Good to, uh, good to see so many of you in the middle of the summer. Very encouraging. Thank you for being here, if for no other reason than to encourage me, just me, nobody else, just me. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, glad that you're here. Uh, we're in the middle of a series where we are looking at uh, the power that comes living from the inside out rather than the outside in. And we're working through Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. That's kind of our theme passage. And you should have a worship folder if you don't. Uh, the screen, the uh, screen will have all of these passages. Uh, it's a couple of different sentences because there's some proverbs mixed in here. Uh, but I'm going to read the uh, the first, well, that half of the insert, and then the outline is on the other half of the insert. Incidentally, have you found, uh, and you know, you can talk, nod your head, whatever. But have you found this series so far helpful? I found it immensely helpful myself. If you found it helpful so far, do not let today be, uh, you know, unhelpful because it probably won't be as helpful as the previous weeks because the B team is up here. Uh, as David already said, in terms of preaching, this, you're getting probably the C or the D team, I hate to tell you. But in all seriousness, it's been immensely helpful for me personally. I hope it's been helpful for you as we've looked at each of these, for lack of a better word, virtues. Uh, and we're going to look this morning, uh, as you'll see there, uh, at uh, self-control. So let me read these to us as we uh, get going on the outline. From Second Peter 1, beginning in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then from Proverbs, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. From Proverbs 16, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. From Proverbs 18, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination. From Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Lastly, for God, from 2 Timothy 1, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is the word of the Lord. So if you look uh, on the other side there, you'll see the outline for uh, today as we look at the beauty of self-control. We've been looking at how these virtues uh, really bring out goodness, truth, and beauty in us as we live from the inside out. And if these things are true on the inside, then outwardly it's going to make a difference. 
in the way that we live. We're going to look different. We're going to behave different. And it's going to be, or really is, I should say, a beautiful way of life. One writer says, the essential drama of life is the drama to construct character. And that takes work. Because we can either react to the world, allowing what's inside of us to affect the inside of us, or we can, from the inside, proactively create uh, good truth and beauty, and so that character flow or virtue flow, moral excellence flow out of us. Now, of course, none of it's possible without the gospel. That goes without saying. Actually, doesn't go without saying. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, which is the only way to supernaturally be made new and become like these virtues that we've been talking about, a person full of faith, uh, a person full of self-control, uh, and the like. So this morning, we're going to look at this. Uh, Proverbs incidentally, has a lot to say about it. Proverbs says a wise person is a self-controlled person. Uh, what's interesting is that your level of self-control affects many other areas, and you'd all agree, we'd all agree with this, right? Your self-control affects how you use your wealth, how you use your words, how you use your work, do your work, your temper, sexual temptation, and the like. It's part of the Spirit's fruit in us. So what do we mean by it? Let me define it like this or just throw out a couple of different definitions. One is control of one's emotions, desires, or action by one's will. Another one that I came across, probably my favorite one, is the supernatural ability to recognize and choose the important thing over the urgent thing. Uh, I've, I've found uh, that one helpful in particular. You might say someone who lives according to the tyranny of the urgent lacks self-control. Much of life feels to them out of control. And that's a person living from the outside in. Uh, more on that in just a minute. The New Testament uses a word that means self-command. So if you're not in command of you, then something else is. You're a slave to that thing. Now, there is, of course, a personal and communal application to this. There's an internal piece to self-control. But being self-controlled will produce beautiful lives as we interact with others, which is why we have to take a look at both of those. The impact of self-control on us personally in the practice of it, but then its impact to those around us. So three things, the necessity of it, why is it so critical? Third, or secondly, the, the challenge of living with it, uh, what are we battling in our culture? And then third, where's the power to get it come from, okay? Those are the three things, uh, the three sort of steps we're going to take as we Look at this. So first, the necessity of it. Self-control, uh, one writer said, is a muscle that tires easily. So avoiding temptation is better than keeping oneself close to opportunities to sin. That was the conclusion. Well, we all know that, right? I mean, of course. Just try saying you'll go on a diet and cut out sugar, but you continue to keep Oreos in the pantry. Your self-control is going to suffer, right? You're challenging yourself. The need to be self-controlled comes with an assumption so it shouldn't surprise you that Christianity talks a lot about it. And the assumption is the impulses inside of us are, by nature, broken. They are selfish, self-driven, self-concerned, self-centered. Our present cultural narrative is constantly encouraging us to trust the impulses and expressive forces inside of ourselves and to distrust those from outside of us. Uh, this is... The, and, and Drew talked about this a few weeks ago, this is the residue, really, of the revolution of the 60s and the 70s. 
right? Distrust those outside of you, the norms, the authority structures, authority figures. But a self-controlled person develops and promotes a, a real steadiness over time. And you, you know this if you have met or are around someone or others have maybe said this about you. There's just a steadiness to people that you characterize as self-controlled. There's something comforting and secure to others about being around a person like that. But of course, the Bible's argument is that kind of person has to be made. You don't just snap your fingers one day and do it. It has to be a process. And the source for it can only come from the outside, of course. The ancient cultures, uh, especially the Greeks, prized self-control. One of their most famous schools of philosophy that many of you have heard of uh, is or was uh, the Stoics. And the Stoics taught that if a person could just master themselves, particularly their emotions, if a person could gain control over their responses to life, they would be free. No person or circumstance could control them. They would be unmoved by anything that happened to them. Now, doesn't that sound great? See, there you go. I'll talk about that particular cultural thing in a second. Uh, It's coming, uh, don't worry. But no, that sounds great, doesn't it? To be unmoved, to not be controlled by outside impulses or forces coming at you. The problem is the Stoics became robotic in their responses to life and people. Today, if you know a person who doesn't display much emotion, you might refer to them as a Stoic person, right? And typically, we don't think of that necessarily as a positive thing. The reason the Greeks prized this so much was because they believed a person through sheer willpower could conquer the destructive forces inside of them, as well as learn to sort of sail through life unmoved. That was what they valued, prized, and really sought after. Of course, there's an element of that that we need. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians says that being tossed to and fro is childish behavior. Children don't have much in the way of self-control. I I know this because, and I, I meant to bring a copy of it and show you, prove to you, those of you that uh, may not believe this, in elementary school, my report card had a section for self-control. In fact, the left side of my report card growing up, uh, I went to St. Paul's Episcopal School uh, across town. Uh, the left side was academics. The right side was character. And you could either get an S or you could get an S plus, an S, uh, an S minus, an NI, which meant needs improvement, or the dreaded U, unsatisfactory. Man, I was chronic used through self-control for most of my uh, elementary days. Um, yeah, um, I, I, was, I was the loudest and most obnoxious on the playground. Uh, and so I got used. Uh, children don't have much in the way of self-control. Some of you are thinking, I know a lot of adults that don't have much in the way of self-control. And yeah, it's a process. Learning to control Your emotions and your responses is part of maturing. But not through willpower or self-determination. It led the Stoics to look down on other sectors of Greek society, and it led the Greeks as a whole to prize reason and restraint over emotion and passion. So why is it necessary according to the Bible? Well, if you look there on your insert at Proverbs 25, 28, this is the main one that I want to focus on. One of the characteristics of a fool, according to Proverbs, is a lack of self-control. And here the writer uses a a word that literally means with no restraint. So look at Proverbs 25, 28. A man without 
restraint is like a city broken into and left without walls. And the analogy is incredibly important because the analogy drives the point home. The person is a city broken into and whose walls are torn down. Well, in the ancient world, a walled city provided security. It provided opportunities for trade and commerce and justice. And if you take away the walls, what happens to the city? It's defenseless, right? It's open to all sorts of marauders, bandits, enemy armies. It's a disaster waiting to happen. And that's a person who lacks self-control. You have a person that has uncurbed drives and desires and impulses, and those drives plunder the person like an attacking enemy. And so just like that city has lost control of itself, so too has the person without self-command or self-restraint. As I said, the Bible operates on the assumption that unless we master our lust, master our temper, master, in fact, all of our evil inclinations, sin will overpower us. And this proverb knows the power of sin that drives a person to death in the same way that we read in the reading of the law. The reason I chose that is, and if you look back in your worship folder at, at, at uh, Genesis 4, the, if you want to sort of know the psychology of sin in one sentence or one verse, look no further than Genesis 4, 7. Because what God says to Cain is, if you don't do well, in other words, if you don't pay attention to me and what I have said, how I've said life works best, and what I expect of you, sin is ready to pounce at the door like a lion, hiding in the grass, seeking to jump on you and kill you, really. Its desire is... And, and, and the translation there is, is contrary for you. Some translations say it's desires for you. It's after you. But you must rule over it. It's a challenge to say sin is an assault on the very desire for and pursuit of a self-controlled way of life. Without self-control, an unrestrained person is defeated before the contest even begins. They've already succumbed to the temptation. And because the Bible prizes moral excellence, it prizes self-control. But the journey toward self-control is very hard, uh, especially today. So look there at the second point and this whole notion of the challenge, the challenge of, of, uh, that, we, that we face. The supernatural ability to choose the important thing over the urgent thing is under immense assault these days. Uh, the Bible pulls no punches over the corruption that's in our hearts, right? Our hearts are deceitful. They're desperately sick, says Jeremiah 17, verse 9. There's an internal battle to control our desires, to take ourselves in hand. Yeah, absolutely, that's true. But the external forces from the outside that seek to gain unfettered access to our insides are maybe more powerful than ever. Outside stimuli. Now, stay with me here. I'm going to get a little nerdy for just a few minutes. Um, outside stimuli, mainly from social interactions, are now, neuroscientists have discovered, have the same effect on our brain as using cocaine. In other words, you get what's called a dopamine buzz. So think of it this way. If you and I are talking and I say something that makes you laugh, and then we, 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 uh, I see you again and I sort of say the same thing or I relate to you in a similar fashion and you laugh again... Every time now that I interact with you, I'm getting a hit. 
this dopamine in my brain, I'm getting a little buzz off of that. And I think, oh man, if I keep doing that, this person will like me. So those of you that know me and are thinking, wow, that's true. He really does that. He tends to relate to me the same way and tries to be funny and all that. That's because I'm getting hits. So if you stop laughing, I'll stop getting hits and I'll relate to you differently. So ball's in your court. Go ahead. Okay. But what happens here is it feels good and so you want to continue. And pretty soon they're discovering you're an addict just like a cocaine addict. And I'd venture to guess that none of us in the room would classify an addict as someone who's self-controlled, right? They're controlled. They're just controlled by something outside of themselves that they need to, to be or to feel okay. It's kind of the classic definition of uh, an, an, an idol. Uh, one neuroscientist says this, and I'm going to quote him. And this is helpful, so do, again, stick with me. I know it's kind of uh, nerdy. Although not as intense as a hit of cocaine, positive social stimuli will similarly result in a release of dopamine, reinforcing whatever behavior preceded it. And so cognitive neuroscientists have shown that rewarding social stimuli, laughing faces, positive recognition by our peers, messages from loved ones, activate the same reward pathways in the brain. Smartphones, I told you it was coming, have provided us with a virtually unlimited supply of social stimuli, both positive and negative. Every notification, whether it's a text message, a like, or a Facebook notification, has the potential to be a positive social stimulus or, and an influx of dopamine. Mm. Yeah, there should be more of that mm, in, the, in the room. But I, I realize that's kind of, it, it, you know, it's kind of whatever. What are you trying to say here? Well, I'm trying to say technology has made all of us readily available so that everything has the feel of urgency. It comes to us with a sense of this needs to be dealt with and it needs to be dealt with right now because everyone expects everyone else to be immediately responding to them. Uh, and even if they don't expect it, we all sort of feel it because, of course, your phone is with you and the notification pops up, then why wouldn't you just go ahead and respond? Meanwhile, the casserole for family dinner is burning to a crisp in the oven. You see how important things get trampled on by urgent things all the time? And technology has really made this much more challenging for us. David Brooks says, the internet is commanding you to click on and sample one thing after another. So living online means living in a constant state of diversion. And when you're living in diversion, you're not actually deeply interested in things or people. You're just bored at a more frenetic pace. So it's really difficult to be self-controlled these days. And of course, I'm not picking on the use of any of those things or a cell phone. For crying out loud, I have wearable technology on right now. Just since I've been talking, my, my uh, wrist has been hapticked, buzzed, whatever the word is. I'm dying to know what it is. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I wear it on my wrist. You want to talk about the ultimate in addict? Buzzes me. And I'm sure the lasers in this thing are doing something to my insides, but I really don't care. Because people see it, ooh, Apple Watch, cool, you know? It's a status symbol. I'm cool. <laughs> Those people who are laughing are the ones who know me and are thinking, no, he's, he sure isn't. That's fine. Those of you that don't, you can, don't talk to them. Just listen to me. I really am. But I, but I want to, to, to take this and say, what does Ephesians 5 
say on that list that's helpful to us because I want to submit to you, this is such a helpful passage uh, in the challenge of living with self-control. Paul's counsel is so wise and so applicable to our day. He says, uh, so look, it's toward the bottom on your insert there. He says, walk or live with purpose. Live on purpose. Live carefully. Look carefully then how you walk, he says. Not carelessly, not haphazardly, because that's a wise way to live. He says, make the best use of the time, which in Greek refers to being successful through trading and investing in the marketplace. So he's literally saying, make the best use of your time. Make a killing in the market in how you use your time. In the evil days in which we live, which we'd all agree, the days are evil. Paul says, use your time wisely. Remember the important things. Remember that the important things matter more than the urgent things. The urgent things are always going to be there, always demanding your attention. And they can eclipse the important things very easily. And self-control comes with wisdom. And wisdom leads to knowing the will of the Lord. Do not be foolish, verse 17, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here's the point. In any given situation, knowing the will of the Lord requires wisdom. And with wisdom comes self-control. Paul goes on in verse 18, and he compares a way of life that lacks self-control, dealing with urges and the urgent by abusing alcohol. He says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be being filled with the Spirit. Right? Alcohol dulls your senses. It erases your worry by making you forget, all of which are very right now ways to deal with reality. But instead, to be filled with the Spirit, the Spirit doesn't dull your senses. It awakens your senses to reality, to reason, to beauty, to truth. The Spirit gets rid of worry by causing you to remember the character and goodness and love of God for you in Jesus Christ. The Spirit makes you remember, makes you alive to what's really real, and it rescues you from urgencies, tyrannical control. What is a tyrant? a brutal dictator, a ruler who does not care about the people but only about themselves. That's why we say the tyranny of the urgent because it's like a brutal dictator. So how do you get it? Lastly, the power, the power for it. And you'll notice there I said being fortified internally will lead to self-control externally. Where does this idea for fortif being fortified come from? Well, look at Proverbs 18, uh, which is in the middle of the insert there. And then I need you to also look back at the call to worship. The call to worship is from Psalm 46. But both of these going together are going to help us understand where's the power come from. The name of the Lord. Whenever the Bible talks about the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord refers to who the Lord is and what the Lord has done, the Lord's character. And in Proverbs 18, it says... The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. What's a strong tower? A strong tower refers to a storehouse, refers to a building where resources were kept, food like grain and rice, even valuables were kept in the storehouse. The storehouse was secure because its contents were guarded, and it was always one of the highest points in the city. People ran into the storehouses when attacked. The psalmist says, 
God is our refuge, meaning our strong tower, our fortress. And so you run into the name of the Lord when you remind yourself of all God has done to prove his character. What has the Lord done to make the way for you and I to run into him? What has the Lord done to make the way for you and I to get to him and be secure? Well, it's Jesus, right? Jesus crumbled under the weight of our sin, and in doing so, abolished death, being raised to newness of life. And so you could look at Proverbs 18 and substitute the word Jesus. Jesus is a strong tower. The righteous run into him and are safe. Now, how do you become the type of self-controlled person described in the Bible? Uh, one of my seminary professors who wrote a commentary on Proverbs says, Wisdom, which is a divine grace that's attained by faith, not a native power, fortifies the inner self and safeguards its possessor. That's, that's what you need. And you have to experience the grace of God in order to get it. If you look at the assurance of pardon from Titus 2, Paul says, the grace of God has appeared. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about Jesus. The grace of God has appeared in Jesus because the grace and presence and mercy and favor of his Father disappeared from him. So now in Jesus, through Jesus, the grace of God appears to us. We get to see it. We get to experience. We get to embrace it. You and I get the ability and the joy of running into the name of the Lord and experiencing the smile and the safety of the presence of the Father. To the extent that we learn to do that and rest in him, when he and he alone becomes your strong tower, you'll be able to master your emotions. You'll be able to learn self-control. Paul says, the grace of God has appeared teaching us, let me get back to it so that I say it right, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God teaches us. The grace of God helps you learn to say no, to learn the important thing over the urgent thing. You'll be wise because you have the mind of Christ. Our passage for this series in 2 Peter says, we are partakers of the divine nature as these things become more part of us and are increasing. That means you become full over time, of course, of self-control, just like Jesus. Running into Jesus provides security. Being united to Jesus gives you all the resources you need to deal with life. His storehouse is filled with his spirit who leads us to the important thing which is always, of course, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Over the urgent thing. And if you're running into him, you're not going to float through life enslaved by that tyrant. You can have one of these. You can have the little computer that we all carry in our pockets and not be enslaved to what it naturally kind of leads you toward. You'll have defense if you're in the storehouse that is Jesus. In him, listen, I'm almost done, I promise. I got one more paragraph. In him, you'll be fearless even when it feels like the earth is crumbling under your feet. That's why I love Psalm 46. Look back at the, the, the portion that we read as a congregation. Therefore, if God is our very uh, refuge and strength, a very present help right now, 
in the trouble that you're in. Therefore, we won't fear, though the earth gives way. They just had a couple earthquakes in California. I mean, they could really relate to this. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, we won't fear, though all that stuff's going on. When the frenetic pace of life creeps in and the tyrant named urgency makes demand after demand after demand of you, in Jesus you'll be fearless. In the storehouse you'll have the security you need and are longing for. When a crisis hits, when your schedule gets blown up, when your job stinks, when your reputation is drugged through the mud, when no one needs you, you're not going to spin out of control. Instead, you'll be inside Jesus Christ, the strong tower with fortified walls, and you will be fortified enough to be able to say, the Lord of hosts is with me. The God of Jacob is my fortress. The spirit of power, of love, and self-control on the inside, which will make you a beautiful person on the outside. Can we pray for that? Let's pray that God would do that uh, in us individually and then in us as a people so that we would display that kind of life uh, to our city. Father in heaven, uh, thank you uh, for punishing Jesus under the weight of our sin uh, for, for his loss that would be our gain. Uh, and thank you that you have now made it possible for us to partake of the divine nature in all the mystery of that uh, because we have to admit we come to this uh, really not believing that those things are possible, that those things can be true of us. And self-control is right up there. And so we pray that as we learn to hide in you, as we learn to run into the storehouse, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, where all the treasures of heaven are stored and kept reserved, where an inheritance that's undefiled and permanent awaits us, we can then from there not fall prey to the tyranny of the urgent, to not fall prey to the constant barrage of things that are coming at us from the outside, but can rest secure. And from there, uh, do what we know is the important thing. Make wise use of our time. Know when to say yes and when to say no. Know what your will is, uh, that we might be filled with the Spirit and live beautiful lives full of love and good deeds. Come and make this possible and true of us individually and among us as a people and on behalf of our church for the sake of our city and ultimately to the ends of the earth we pray in Jesus name amen uh, amen again thanks for being here I uh, encourage you hopefully you're getting some rest and finding some time uh, to vacate this summer that's what it's for uh, so hope that you're doing that uh, receive this word as you go uh, it's a promise it's a reminder uh, it is as the word says, a good word over you to remind you of everything that's already been said uh, as you go. This promise goes with you because he goes with you. The, the God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts is with us. Amen. Uh, receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you 
and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.